As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and it is MLS playoff time. We had two games last night. We're recording this Wednesday, just before Thanksgiving. We had four this past weekend. We're going to be discussing them all on this episode. And to do so, it's not just going to be me, because that would be boring and unfulfilling, uh, I think. I'm going to be joined by our friends from MLS Assist. That means we've got Jordan Angeli. Jordan, hello. What time did you stop watching soccer <laughs> last night? I was, you know what? It felt like that last game. Yeah. Just, it was the energy in a way that we needed to, mm-hmm. to stay up. Um, <laughs> I fortunately am home in Colorado right. for the holidays. So I wasn't on East Coast time, which I'm impressed by your energy this morning. You were bringing it. Oh. Granted that you probably didn't go to sleep until what, 2.30, 3? About, about that, yeah, 2 o'clock. Yeah. And then uh, the uh, the screaming almost one-year-old woke us oh, up right, right that, early. And then you so... just sprinkle that in. Yeah, yeah. It's It's been a pot of coffee sort of morning, but I'm here. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about it with you, Jordan. And with you, Joseph. Joe, I'm going to assume last night was a uh, a good time to be fully on the West Coast. Oh, it was, baby. I was still up later than I'd like to be watching Real Salt Lake take absolutely no shots during the run of play. But still, guys, I feel like this is... This is a reverse U.S. Women's National Team at the Olympics recording session in that we weren't (laughs) up at the crack of dawn. Instead, we were up a little bit later than we liked. Because I think that was the last time the three of us talked was about Vlatko in, in that U.S. Women's National Team's performance at the Olympics and them underwhelming a little bit. And now we're back, baby, with the same amount of sleep, just in a little bit of a different way. (laughs) Well said, Joe. Well said. And to talk about, I would say, uh, happier topics on on this episode. Not the U.S. Women's National Team failing to get a result, but some teams failing to get a result and some teams getting the result they exactly wanted, specifically most of the home teams getting the results that uh, were, were needed, all except for one commiserations Seattle fans we are going to talk about uh the Philadelphia Union versus the New York Red Bulls Sporting KC versus Vancouver NYCFC Atlanta Portland Minnesota as well as last night's games Nashville Orlando and Seattle RSL but first we've got a few little coaching updates we can get to a few little uh MLS newsy sort of things Jordan we've had a hiring in Chicago is that correct 
That is correct. Ezra Hendrickson is the new coach of Chicago Fire FC. Um, Hendrickson was with the Columbus crew for the last three years, but he also was with Seattle for a number of years under Siggy Schmid, which is really where he got his toes dipped into coaching, which if you're talking about a coach to to learn under, you know, that's one of the best coaches in MLS history. So he not only was an assistant coach there, but he coached Seattle too when he was in Seattle. So it gave him a little taste at head coaching and he's been eager to get back in the the mix there. Last year, Joe and I talked about him being in the mix. I, I believe it was for DC when, when that coaching hiring was yeah. happening, but he is... Aside from what he has done on the field, you guys, um, he's won MLS Cups. He's won Open Cups. He is an international. Um, he played internationally with the Grenadines. He's like, he is the nicest human. And I'm really excited for him because he has been working hard for this. And this is what you want, right? You want to build up these coaches through the system. And then when the opportunity comes, I'm really excited for him to get that chance in Chicago with a team, Joe, that could look significantly different so than different. it has looked in the last couple of years. So much roster turnover. This is, I mean, it's not like the only chance Chicago is going to have to get it right because MLS is notoriously forgiving, but this is a big off season for them. They've already got the coaching hire pretty early on in the off season. The roster, I mean, they, they lost a lot of players. They didn't so much lose them as they, they put them in a place and decided not to find them again. But, I mean, it's going to be a much different Chicago team, to your point, Jordan. Is it going to be a much improved Chicago team? Not even necessarily oh. in terms of the results. But, Joe, what you're alluding to, the like telling players their options weren't going to be picked up with a game <laughs> yeah. remaining doesn't seem like the best way to build camaraderie and morale. Do, does it seem like this is the first step in the right direction? Or do we need to kind of withhold judgment until we see what else Chicago do? I'll be withholding judgment. It right. could very well be the first step in that right direction. I just think it's a little too early, Taylor, in the off season and maybe even into next season before we'll really be able to know. Yeah, I, I'm with Joe, but also I think there Chicago sometimes with what you were just talking about, about going into the last game, already telling players that they they weren't going to have contracts next year. I think they also need to get out of their own way in certain situations and then they'd be good. And I think this is a really good um, start to that. Put, hiring someone who has not only experience as a player and knowing what it's like to be in a locker room competing in this league, but as a head coach and what it takes, the hours it takes to really prepare a game plan for your team and um, the camaraderie. I think Ezra Hendrickson is really going to add that camaraderie that this team um, really desperately is looking for. Yeah, and being a head coach in modern soccer definitely can be very demanding. It can require a reset. If you do end up getting sacked or walking away from a job, maybe you want to take a year or two off. Or if you're Bob Bradley, you take off about four days and then you end up <laughs> signing for Toronto. Bob Bradley, Joe, uh, now in Toronto. What do you make of that one? Uh, it, it felt like this was in the cards a lot. It had been reported. It had been talked about. Paul and Sam had talked about it plenty on allocation disorder. This felt like it was in the cards, a reuniting of Bob and Michael Bradley I think this is a good hire for Toronto. I think LAFC in a lot of ways are going to miss Bob Bradley. Yes, they underperformed this year. Yes, they missed the postseason, which is hard to do in Major League Soccer, to be completely honest. But, man, Bob Bradley, 
I think is a good coach in Major League Soccer. I think he's going to do some impressive things in Toronto. There's a lot of roster flexibility, or it looks like there's going to be a lot of roster flexibility. Bob Bradley was also named the sporting director, so he's going to have power in a lot of different parts of this organization, a la Peter Ramiz, a la Bruce Arena. He's going to have a chance to shape this roster in ways that a lot of other coaches don't have a chance to to shape their own rosters. Mm -hmm. Josie Altidore, it looks like, might be on the way out if if reports are correct. So he's going to have at least one DP spot to, to play with and in some other roster flexibility as well. I think this is a good hire for Toronto who are doing some organizational restructuring themselves. I'm very curious to see what that team looks like next year. Yeah, and we knew he was going somewhere where he could do both things, right? Yeah. And my my biggest thing that I'm thinking is like how many years until it's a Bob Bradley, Michael Bradley coaching duo. Do you think yeah. Michael eventually <laughs> adds to the coaching staff? Because I think that's also in the cards. Oh. I was actually going to ask that. Do you think that's part of the plan? Because we're talking about Josie Altador being on the way out. Uh, Michael Bradley, 34 years old, turns 35 uh, this coming July. So he's got some time before he's 35. And we know players can play on past that. But I can't see him being moved on, his dad coming in. It feels like that is sort of in the plan is for him to start getting those those coaching licenses and kind of work his way through the system. Do, do you all feel like there is a chance that we end up with Michael Bradley as assistant or head coach and Bob Bradley running the the front office? I hope so. Man, the content that, that would come from that. Can you imagine, Taylor? It would be so good. I don't know. I'd be very curious to actually understand what their relationship is like. I would assume that they're somewhat close if, if they're going to be working guess. together. Yeah. yeah, but that's the, pers- that's the persona that they kind of oh, both yeah. give off to outsiders. So I'm just curious to see what happens there again. But uh, that would be epic, Taylor. Joe, in, in your world, is there a chance that... They give these very stern, like monosyllabic press conferences. They're a little bit prickly, and then the door closes, and they're just like super warm and affectionate <laughs> behind closed doors. Is that what we're yeah. picturing? I, right. I think I think Bob Bradley is this family man. I, I'm not totally sure about that, but I think they're both nice people. <laughs> mm-hmm. They just maybe don't always have the time for folks out there who are asking questions that they don't appreciate. You know what I mean? <laughs> All I'm picturing is you, like Sebi Salazar style, to your point, okay. asking Bob Bradley, like, you seem like a nice guy, and him just taking tremendous issue with that. How dare you? How dare you ask me about whether or not I'm a nice person? Uh, so uh, we don't need to speculate on whether or not Bob Bradley is a nice person. We'll find out how that working arrangement goes, but we can talk about the playoff games that have happened thus far. Normally we go chronological tonight, or today, where I think we're going to go reverse chronological. It could be tonight. It could be this morning. Yeah, I, I don't really say. know anymore. <laughs> uh, doesn't know. Let's talk about Seattle Sounders RSL, a game that in the uh, the kind of coverage between regulation and extra time, there was speculation on will RSL just play for penalties? Is this what they're okay with? Are they okay with it going to penalties? And I found that very confusing, Jordan, because to my mind, uh, I saw David Ochoa, the goalkeeper for RSL, start time-wasting at, I think, the 35th minute. It seemed like they were just straight up playing for penalties from the very beginning. Maybe that is an oversimplification and they were trying to sit back and counter. I'm not quite sure. Do you have thoughts on what the RSL game plan was from start to finish? Well, it sure looked like it. And I do think that the game plan changed slightly. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I'll mention that in just a second as as the game went on. But... I. When you have Pablo Mastroni as your head coach, that is kind of a little bit what is built into him. He likes the defensive tactics. If you think about when he was at Colorado, when he was coaching at Colorado as well, it it was a lot of that just we're going to be a team who has a little bit of a chip on our shoulder and we're not afraid to just defend and mix the game up. Like They really didn't have many intentions to um, score a goal. 
Uh, clearly, they didn't have a shot on goal. And um, I think we all were at some point turning and, and saying, all right, we're kind of rooting for RSL to win without having an actual shot on goal because that would be so MLS after dark. Um, we, we would just add that to the list of things. But I do think that in the last 15 minutes of regular time, so of the 90, I felt like RSL this is the best team in that time of the game. They've scored the most goals in MLS. They're really good in stoppage time, getting a late winner. And it felt to me like they did change tactically and start to press a little bit higher, throwing, um, I, I mostly noticed Herrera up a little bit to try to kickstart, maybe potentially trying to get a shot on goal. So it did feel a little different there, but all in all, they were ready to defend. And man, what a... What a performance of defensive work from this RSL team. I was so impressed. Yeah, I think it's definitely been knocked as like the less like the less fun team went out. Seattle fans certainly feeling frustrated. But I'm with you, Jordan, that in those final 15 minutes of regulation and even into extra time, you could see that RSL just set up to frustrate Seattle and they did it really effectively. And yes, there were times when that meant there were fouls and a little bit of chippiness. But I also just saw, I think the mic caught Brian Schmetzer at one point saying, just go forward, just go forward. And they ended up kind of dumping it long, I think because they couldn't find much possession through RSL. Joe, do you have ideas as to what RSL were doing to make it so difficult for Seattle? Absolutely. Yeah, Taylor, that's that's a great point from you. And Jordan, I appreciate that analysis, too. This this defensive setup is kind of it's kind of art, right? Not everybody likes art. Not everybody likes this kind of art, but it is still a skill in one way or another. Right. So RSL come out in this four four two mid block. And Jordan, you're right. They did step forward to press some. But by and large, for the majority of this game, they were back a little bit deeper in that four four two mid block. Their their thesis, their main idea in this mid-block, as I saw it, was to deny the Seattle Sounders the ability to pass the ball into their double pivot, which to start this game was Christian Roldan and was Jao Paulo, especially Jao Paulo, because Paulo is this team's... He's this team's metronome. He is this team's a guy who's going to get on the ball. He's going to spray it around. He's going to be the, the guy conducting attacks. So from the very first minute of this game, Demir Krylak and Rubio Rubin, the front two for RSL in that 4-4-2 are keeping track of that double pivot. They're tracking Roldan. They're tracking Jao Paulo. Krylak in the first minute drops and shifts to the right side, I believe, for RSL to, to move with Jao Paulo to deny him any chance of getting on the ball. And it wasn't strict man marking, but it was Krylak and, and Rubin pointing to Everton and, and pointing to Pablo Ruiz, the double pivot for RSL in the heart of that 4-4-2, pointing and communicating with them, shifting and saying, okay, you pick up Paulo now. You pick up, you pick up Roldan now. And Seattle had a really hard time, especially in the first 30 minutes of this game, I thought, breaking through that that 4-4-2 and finding their central players. So they had to rotate Roldan wide. They had to rotate Jao Paulo wide. And, but most of the time, though, it just ended up with them playing hopeful long balls, especially in the first half of this game. There were some good sequences from Seattle, and they were the better team in this one. Don't get me wrong. They had way more chances. It's not hard to have way more than zero chances. But, I mean, <laughs> they were they were on top of things, but still, this wasn't the best version of the Sounders because they couldn't play through those players, and they weren't skilled enough with the movement off the ball and moving the, the central players wide and, and playing through them to actually create enough consistent chances and build a rhythm in possession to fully break this RSL team down. Joe, I know you you compared it to art. I'm going to go with architecture and say that it could be like Frank Lloyd Wright or Art Deco. You could have different styles. And then I think on the evening, RSL went for more of a brutalist approach to to what they were trying to do. And I think Seattle maybe weren't quite 
prepared for that. I think they also probably were not ready for David Ochoa. Jordan, you have the like analysis background. You have the playing background. Have you ever experienced a goalkeeper trying some of the stuff that Ochoa was doing from a time-wasting perspective, from a talking trash perspective? I love that we had the mics during the shootout so you could hear him talking the entire time. I don't know what he was saying because my Spanish isn't that good, but it seemed pretty aggressive. I'm wondering if you have experience, and if you do, how you handle something like that. You know, I I wish I could say I did because that would be a funny story. But (laughs) I think I don't know if many people have had experience with what Ochoa just showed us. Um, And that's what really makes him unique and uh, gets all the attention, really, when you talk about this game throughout the rest of MLS of RSL going in and beating Seattle at home, which is a huge feat. But I just was so shocked at him tiptoeing that line. He's on a yellow card and he's trying to do a rainbow with the ball near the sideline to like restart, (laughs) to go get it and restart it. I'm like, what is actually going on? Like part of you is a little delirious. I'm sure you were Taylor on the East coast. Like, is that really, did that really just happen? And, um, it was comical. And I, I think that he does a good job of using that to his advantage. Um, we've seen sometimes though, it biting him in the butt and being a little too like extra cocky and it being too much. But I felt like in this game, um, it was exactly what everybody watching really needed because, um, they needed that spark from RSL and he provided it. <laughs> he certainly did. Cause even as the moment when he goes down, he lands awkwardly. It seems like maybe he jams his knee for a second. And I did think having seen everything he was doing again from <laughs> the first half on to kill time, to frustrate, to annoy, to have little chats back and forth with Seattle players. It felt like in that moment, like, Oh, he did actually hurt himself here. He's jammed his knee. That could be really bad. Maybe he's going to have to be subbed out. And then he sort of hops back up and keeps going. And at that point, I almost had to like just bow like, all right, all right, that's well done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even pulled me in on that one. Well done, sir. I do think he ends up sort of calming down by the time we get to the penalty shootout. As I said, he continues to talk. He continues to clap the gloves the whole time and just do little head gamey sort of things. But early on, I, I think he guessed the wrong way every single time. And by the final two or three rounds, I think the last two at least, he's guessing the right way, he gets a hand to one, and then he ends up making the save. Uh, what what did you all make of Davido Choa in the shootout? Because I am less familiar with him overall than you all are. Were you expecting him to have that type of performance? What did you expect when we got to the shootout? He's he's a talented goalkeeper, Taylor. He really, really is. And I, I'm all aboard the David Ochoa, you know, making an absolute mockery of the sport. I'm all for that. I think it's really entertaining to watch. And I feel like a lot of the narrative surrounding Ochoa will be, well, at least from U.S. media and U.S. fans, will be slightly tainted because he, he didn't choose to play for the U.S. men's national team. And right. so I just want to be very clear. I, I am hugely entertained by David Ochoa, and I am weirdly excited to watch him play for Mexico and watch him in CONCACAF because I think he will fit perfectly in all of those different arenas. So just setting that aside, I feel like a lot of people are going to be maybe a little bit bent out of shape about David Ochoa in a way that they wouldn't have been should he have chosen to play for the U.S. Yeah. men's national team. But anyway, setting that aside, in the shootout, Taylor, I'm not really surprised that he came up big in a couple of these moments. I think he's a hugely talented keeper. 
he's got the athleticism, he's got the quick feed, he's got hands to to make over to, to step over, excuse me, and make those saves. He does get a, a tip on Nicoladero's fifth penalty. So that's the fifth penalty for the Sounders, and then he saves Kellen Rose's penalty after guessing the right way. Perry's it wide, gets there in plenty of time. He's an athletic dude. He's he's got potential with the ball at his feet as well. He's a talented player. There's a reason why the U.S. and Mexico, in addition to him just being another another dual national in that race, there's a reason why those two programs have been clamoring after him and trying to get him. And there's a reason why he's really been RSL's next goalkeeper after Nick Romando. Yeah, there was a bit of a gap in there with with Zach McMath and Andrew Putin, I believe, sliding in to play that to play that position. But Ochoa was always and now very clearly is this goalkeeper for RSL. And I think he's got a pretty big future ahead of him in terms of of pure talent, Taylor. Yeah. I just want to add one thing on the penalties in the goalkeeping position. I was the worst goalkeeper ever, so um, I can't speak on knowing which way to guess or what to do. But I do think one of the benefits that Ochoa has is he's young and these new rules for penalties have happened when he is young. And if you watch the mm. footwork or Stefan Fry, when he comes off his line and saves the penalty and then it has to get retaken, he is always going forward. And so he's going to get called for that, right? It's going to be a retake every single time. But if you watch Ochoa, when he, when he's standing there getting ready to dive, his pushing leg always steps backwards. So it's, always going to be on the line or behind the line. And that technique and that footwork allows him to make the save and for that save to be a legitimate save. And I know that's a small thing, but if you go back and watch his footwork on the goal that he saved for um, uh, Kellen Rowe, you'll see his left foot steps back as he pushes off to go to his right. And it is a little detail that literally won his team the game. Yeah, and and I think uh, I'm with you on that, Jordan. That's a great point because there were other times when they did show us the reverse angle and it seemed like his feet were off the line. But I I think it's because he does that step back, then he kind of drives forward. So even if his his plant foot is off the line, is further ahead, that back leg, that trailing leg uh, is Mm -hmm. usually on the line, behind the line, or at the very least, if it's in the air, it's still in a position where that is then a valid penalty save. And I think he definitely timed it very, very well. And you could see him starting to get the hang of it, as we said. Then he gets the hand of the Ladero one. The mic picks him up, venting his frustration. He ends up making the save for Kellen Rowe. So the pressure then on Stefan Fry. And man, that is an almost borderline insulting way to lose. Not just because Ochoa was probably <laughs> talking trash the whole time, but for Fry to get a hand to Justin Glad's penalty, pushes it onto the post, and then it basically just rolls insultingly into the far side netting off the post. I did feel bad for Stefan Fry. I felt bad for Seattle. We should take a moment to uh, to talk about them. I saw mixed reactions to this one, a lot of frustration towards Ochoa and the way RSL set up from Seattle fans, but I also saw some frustration towards uh, Brian Schmetzer from Seattle fans and some criticism of him losing assistance this season and how that, that hasn't necessarily put him in a stronger position in terms of game management. Do you think that's, do you all think that's harsh? Do you think he did what he could on the evening or were there changes that you think he could have made or should have made? 
uh, there, there's some adjustments that I, I wanted to see in my notes. And to an extent, we saw some of those. So earlier I mentioned RSL's 442 and them blocking off Christian Roldan and Joao Paulo. This, I should say up front, is a bit of a rotated lineup from the Sounders. Raul Ruiz Diaz on the bench, uh, still working his way back to full fitness from an injury. Nico Ladero on the bench, staying, same thing with him. And Alex Roldan, same situation. So Kellen Rowe, Freddie Montero, and, and some other reshuffling in midfield essentially subbed in for those players. And all three of them ended up coming off the bench in this game. So it is a little bit of a rotated lineup from the Sounders, but still a team that is better than RSL on paper, without a doubt. There were some things that I wanted to see from the Sounders, and I, I felt like we, we partially saw them. One thing, I mentioned them not being able to play through midfield. Well, a logical response to that is then maybe moving those central midfielders wide, which we did see, and then dropping players in. And that's the thing that I think we partially saw, but maybe Seattle didn't lean to it, lean into it as much as they should have. So Freddie Montero is playing as the nine in this game for the Sounders. He's not a traditional nine. He's more of an off-the-shoulder of a bigger, stronger number nine kind of guy. He's more of a pseudo-winger, pseudo-10, float-around-in-the-attack kind of guy. So with him as the nine... It felt to me like the stars had almost aligned for him to drop in and facilitate a little bit more and to get on the ball and act as this pivot player between midfield and attack. And he did that. The 40th minute it happened and the 45th minute it happened. I noted a couple of those sequences that actually helped Seattle play through midfield and keep possession instead of just playing it long and looking for those second balls. But I don't think we saw enough of that. I don't think we saw enough of that from Nicolas Benaze on the wing. I don't think we saw enough of that from Freddie Montero. We didn't see enough off-ball movement in general from the Sounders. And I think they hamstrung themselves a little bit because of that. I don't know where to place that blame, Taylor, though. That's the thing. I don't know if we place it on Schmetzer for not instructing his team enough. I don't know if he did that or not, right? Maybe it's on the players for not not doing that. But the one thing I, I am certain is that there were some breakdowns for the Sounders here that prevented them from actually getting on the score sheet, even though that they, they did dominate this game in some senses. It still, it wasn't this like overwhelming onslaught of chances from the Sounders. They had way more chances than RSL, again, but but not a peak Seattle Sounders yeah. performance, certainly. Do you think Do you think in some ways, Joe, they could have switched to a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1 and put more players like I felt like Morris and Benaze were playing so narrow at times but the the way the RSL was defending is they were so good at defending every half space that Seattle is usually the best at occupying and so if you switch formations and then you just have Ariaga and Yamar be the two center backs you can push more players up the field you can then use Jao Paulo as that player, that central midfielder you were saying, floating wide and picking up the ball wide, and then hopefully pulling and creating some space more centrally so you can play that direct incising ball into Montero or, um, you know, an on-running rolled on, which I think he's better in a, in a more eight or a more attacking position. Um, I feel like they could have switched formations because having three center backs play against a team who did not have a shot on goal just seemed like a waste of a player. Well, maybe you maybe you make that switch or Jordan, maybe you just say to the center backs, maybe you say to Yanmar or or to Ariaga or to Shane O'Neill, go, right? Get mm-hmm. on the ball and go use this numerical advantage we have at the back. They did make some True. runs forward from deeper areas. But you're right, Jordan, a lot of those players ended up being surplus to requirements in certain ways because they weren't impacting the game from deep. You either want to change the positional alignment, change the formation like you're talking about, or just get more out of players in certain spaces and be a bit more fluid with the ball. And I think the Sounders were lacking both or either one of those things really last night. Yeah, and I and I think, Joe, you, you both make great points. I really like the idea 
that even the chances they were creating, they weren't very clear-cut chances, at least to my notes, to my memory. Mm-hmm. There's the, uh, I think it's Roldan who hits the one off of the crossbar that felt like it could have taken the roof off of the stadium if that Rudy had gone Diaz, in. I like, think, yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you. And and it just, there were those moments, but again, that shot is from distance. It's it's like, it's not the sort of, oh, like Ochoa gets across and somehow gets a hand to it. It's, he didn't quite have the stand on his head performance. And so I think there were opportunities, Jordan, if it is taking a center back off or if it is just pushing one of those forward, I think there could have been more there, but I don't think we're in a situation where we then need to, you know, throw everything out and start over. Seattle's still a pretty strong team and a pretty solid organization. We would expect them to continue to be so, but we also would expect RSL to go on to the next round, which they have. They will meet Sporting Kansas City in the conference semifinals or just the quarterfinals, if you want to go that way. Uh, We're going to talk about (laughs) SKC's win over Vancouver later on, but we're going to first take a break. Then we're going to talk about Nashville doing some things against Orlando. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. We are back. We're going to talk Nashville, Orlando, Nashville with a three to one win. Not as many, if at all, sort of gamesmanship drama in this one. Just an early goal from Orlando, then three unanswered goals from Nashville. Jordan, is this roughly the way you expected this game to go? It seems like it's kind of par for the course that Nashville caused some problems for themselves, then figure it out. And overall, it seemed like they were comfortable in this victory. But I'm wondering if you had expected this one to be a little bit different. Yeah, I'm just imagining Zimmerman in the the pregame huddle, like, we're going to give up an early goal, (laughs) and then we're going to come back like we always do. All right, everybody, team on three. Part of it. It's a risky, Um, risky team talk. It is risky, you know, but they like to live dangerously there in Nashville. Uh, It is. uh, Those bachelor parties do get pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) right. It is so crazy to me. You know, I I think this is how I expected it to play out in a lot of ways. Um, I think Nashville is the best. I think they're going to win it all. Just the way that they play, I feel like they are so solid in a lot of key positions and I like the way they play but it's interesting to me that they need this little shock to their system in order to get going you know I I think a lot of us thought when it was 1-1 at half and then Nashville scores that second goal you're like oh this definitely is going to end 2-2 because it they they tend to have this little let up when they go up and you know tied the most games in MLS this year which is 
incredible that they're in the playoffs basically on on draws. Um, but I think it was a lot of what we thought, just the way the team set up. Um, in their, it's Nashville in a three four two one. It's against this Orlando team with Oscar Pereja, who plays a four two three one, and they're very regimented in some of the movements that they do. So I think that there was a lot of things that we saw that we've seen all season, and these two teams have had really close games. So to see that Nashville took it three to one shows that Nashville has that little extra edge and can what looked like to me not figure out a way to convert goals on not a lot of opportunities, whereas Orlando had some good chances. They just weren't able to convert, which is the big thing when you're in playoffs, right? You have to be able to get that get the goal out of maybe your one or two chances that you have. Or you're 24, if you want to go that route, uh, Seattle. <laughs> uh, Joe, uh, Jordan feeling pretty bullish about Nashville. What did you make of their performance? I am also bullish on Nashville. I think they have a really good chance to win this whole thing. I'm not I'm not as bold as Jordan is to go out and say it. Um, <laughs> but I also have some concerns about Nashville based off of this game and based off of what we've seen this season. Uh, the first one is just how many holes they tend to put themselves in and the goals that they let in on set pieces. Orlando City's goal comes from Daryl DK early, early on in this game. And it's a little too easy for Daryl DK. Joe Willis is in no man's land as the header comes in from DK. I don't really know why Dan Lovitz is marking Daryl DK when Walker Zimmerman is on the field. I believe Walker Zimmerman was man marking Antonio Carlos, which is also a worthy opponent for him. Also, pause. Walker Zimmerman, guys, somebody oh needs gosh. to give this guy a massage. He's dealt with Mikel Antonio and Daryl DK in his last two games, one for club, one for country. This guy just needs a break. Uh, maybe that'll come after they win MLS Cup. Who knows? Anyway, back to the goal. I don't I don't really understand what's happening here for Nashville, and, and they've done that too many times this season. Joe, I got to interrupt. Have you seen Dan Le- the still shot of just before the corner's taken when it's Dan oh, Lovett's marking so Daryl DK? No, I haven't. I'm not sure. I can imagine it though. <laughs> I'm not sure he knew why he was marking Daryl DK either from his facial expression. He was looks it? very yeah. confused. Was it MLS that tweeted it out that I was like so. DK knew, Lovitz also knew. <laughs> yes. Man, getting flamed by your own league, Dan Lovitz. Yeah. Dan Lovitz oh. got a major strike. But the thing is, it happened multiple times in this game. Lovitz was on DK. Like that was the that was the pre-planned alignment from Gary Smith. Don't fully understand that with the mix of man and zonal marking for Nashville. I, the, the, the the strategy behind it is fine, but the individual matchup there, I don't understand. So, but much. I don't but know who else you put on him, Joe. Zim, do you put Zim, you put Zimmerman on him, right, or any other center back? I guess that's not. Yeah. So you I switch Zimmerman know. and Lovitz. Put Lovitz on Antonio Carlos. Like, I think that would be a good switch. But it's like the the players that Nashville have, they don't have a lot of players yeah. that could size up to Daryl DK and Antonio Carlos. That's true. It is a little bit of a lose. If you have Romney situation. out there, it's different. But Romney, I don't think, got enough credit for not being in the game. <laughs> this is a guy who he's played every single minute of this season. And now he misses the first playoff game. Like, that is a hard loss for Nashville, yet they still get the win. Yeah, that's that's totally true. Sorry, I'm laughing. Taylor just sent both of us a <laughs> screenshot oh. of that picture. <laughs> Daryl DK is smiling so big. What an ass. Yeah. What a great photo. Um, okay, okay, back to Nashville here, folks. Sorry, I think I got us derailed there a little bit. That's all right. I, I have concerns about Nashville starts. And I have concerns about their goal scoring. Jordan, you mentioned the importance in playoff games of converting your chances, and you are absolutely right about that. I I do have concerns about when Nashville's luck might run out. They score three goals 
on almost nothing in terms of expected goals in this game. Honey Mukhtar's first one comes in the 21st minute, takes a big deflection. Mukhtar's second goal, 74th minute, good bit of skill from him and a good counterattack from Nashville to get Mukhtar out, isolated on the break on the right side in a 1v1 against Orlando's left back, Moss, on that side. Mukhtar makes mincemeat out of him and gets in the box and scores, but still not a finish you can really count on. And then Yonder Cadiz ices the game, 94th minute, and it's it's a great goal, great turn, great finish, but not really something you expect. I'm not seeing a lot of repeatable goal-scoring actions from Nashville SC. Do they have the ability to pull those things out? Yes. Can they create chances? Yes. But I think that could be, if there's going to be a problem for Nashville, it's either going to be them getting down. Well, I guess these are connected, right? It's it's going to be Nashville potentially putting themselves in a hole and then just not having the consistent attacking patterns mm-hmm. to get out of that hole. Yeah. For a person who has not seen a ton of Nashville this season, I will say the combination of Sapong and Mukhtar seemed like, though maybe there's not a ton that you can sort of see being replicated over and over again, the interplay between the two, the relationship and understanding was pretty next level, to me at least, and and does feel like a thing that will serve them well as we go through the playoffs. Because for the for the goal, for the equalizer, it's Sapong, what... Dropping in, holding up, like having a good first touch under pressure, laying it off, getting it back. He spreads it wide. And then I tweeted this. He makes a really aggressive run forward. And there's a moment when he thinks like, okay, I'm going to try to, you could see him trying to kind of evaluate where can I run into in space to receive a pass. And I think evaluates and correctly determines nowhere. I'm not going to be able to get on the end of this to get a shooting opportunity. What I can do is take players away. And I think that's what his run ends up being is not really looking for a pass, but running sort of diagonally towards the near post. He ends up having all three center backs collapse on him and it opens up that huge gap for Mukhtar to go into. And he has to have the ability to do so and the confidence to go into that space, but then shoot back across him into the far side netting, which he does, and it's a great goal. But the interplay between the two, the awareness of each of them and the awareness of how to play off of each other uh, really stuck out to me in this game. So mostly just wanted to take a moment to praise uh, those two for their role in uh, the opener and I think the second goal as well. They're they're so good, and I think that their combination in the way that they can play with one another in those interchanging moments is so important. But if you don't have a player like CJ Sapong in this team, you don't have a Nashville team who can play this way because his holdup play, I, I don't know if there is a, another player I can think of off the top of my head in MLS that can come off the back line in almost like a false nine type of position and connect the lines like he does. He has had 12 goals and five assists this season. So it's not that he's just attaching those connections, right? And being the player that finds Mukhtar or or Leal or even Lovitz overlapping in that wingback position. But he's also making those runs. I was watching with my dad last night and he goes, oh, that run was so good. And it was. Sapong's run on that second goal created the space that Mukhtar needed to get the shot off. And it is really important what he does off the ball. It's so unselfish. And those two just seem like they are best friends and they're enjoying every single minute of playing together in on this national team. Jordan, thank you for that uh, gentle correction. Yes, a look down at my notes right in front of me would have told me that that was the second goal for Nashville where they had that uh, combination oh, yeah. play. Uh, but I stand by my statement, even though it wasn't three center backs. He, he manages to get all three defenders to collapse on him, does Sapong. But for Mukhtar, 
the the second goal is excellent. The first goal to collect, to turn, to carry it forward, to shoot. Yes, it gets a pretty big deflection, but I thought it was good awareness of a kind of vulnerable moment, and Mukhtar does well there. So too did uh, Godoy, who steps forward, I think, maybe 15 yards to win that ball. I just thought there was kind of aggressiveness from Nashville instead of backing off. Maybe it was that ha- that uh, pregame talk from Zimmerman about we got to let them concede, <laughs> then they'll get overconfident, then we can go at them. I think it worked out well. So well done to Zim, but mostly well done to uh, Mukhtar. Yeah, can I add, Taylor, can I add one more uh, just general point about maybe the tactics of this game? Um, if I before? say no, what will you do? I'll probably just do it anyway. Uh, okay. Um, okay, perfect. So I'll just I'll just do it, and now we're on the same page. So one thing that did impress me, and, and I, I don't know, maybe I came off as too harsh on Nashville before. They're they're real good guys, and the production from Mukhtar and Sapong, in a sense, is something you can count on. I, I just do still have some concerns there. But still, Nashville put together a lot of nice sequences in this game in possession, and part of that's because they have those clever players who can combine but also part of that is because of how Orlando approached this game. I don't know how much you guys paid attention to this or saw this, but the way that Orlando defended, they're in this 4-4-2 as well. Um, so they're in this this 4-2-3-1 that shifts into a back three, and then defensively they're in a 4-4-2 with Daryl DK up top and Mauricio Pereira next to him. And so then you've got Benji Michel and Chris Mueller on the wings with, with uh, Sebastian Mendez and Junior Urso as the heart of that 4-4-2. But with how Oscar Pereira set this team up, you had Daryl DK and Pereira up front, and their job, as I saw it, was not to pressure Nashville's back three. Did they do it sometimes? Yes. But most of the time, they just kind of stood there trying to block off access for Nashville into Dax McCarty, into Annabelle Godoy, and into Randall Leal. They weren't trying to step in pressure. They weren't trying to disrupt Nashville's ball carriers. They were trying to block off passing angles. And on paper, that, that kind of makes sense, right? If you can deny access into central midfield like RSL did to Seattle, you can give the opposition fits, especially a team like Nashville that, that really does rely on progressing the ball through those central spaces and getting it into the feet of Mukhtar, getting it to Leal or, or really one of the central players to distribute. But the thing is, Orlando didn't really do a very good job of executing that idea. In a theoretical sense, you can see it working, but in reality, it it didn't really work a whole lot. The, those two players, DK and Pereira, didn't do a very good job of blocking off those angles. Annabelle Godoy found space. Uh, Randall Leal found space. Dax McCarty found space. It was just the little line-breaking passes from Zimmerman or from one of the other, uh, one of the other center backs into a central midfielder. Then it was ping, 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 and Nashville were facing forward in the final third. That defensive setup, I guess more importantly, the defensive execution or lack thereof from Orlando was kind of shocking to me in a game like this where you've had so much time to drill that approach from the end of the regular season, from decision day until November 23rd. I was a little bit surprised at how poorly Orlando executed that, and credit to Nashville for putting together some pretty nice possession sequences against that defensive shape. It felt a lot like defensively what we saw for RSL, right? It's yeah. not high pressing the back three. RSL was sitting back, letting them tr- say, okay, break us down. But RSL was so much more compact and did a good job of denying those spaces into the central players. Whereas Orlando didn't do that. I had noted the, there's a goal in the, the first half. It ends up being what would have been the second goal. It gets ca- called offside for um, Anibal Godoy. But it was Orlando deciding to go high press. And when they decided to go high press, it was Mueller, Pereira, and DK about 20 yards from their half field. And once that happened, it was like Nashville said, all right, thank you very much. We're going to play right through you, um, move down the left side and created a really good, you know, if it wasn't for Godoy being off on the initial shot, I believe it was from, from Mukhtar. 
then that's a goal. And it was just such a well drawn up execution of pulling Orlando out, which Nashville was trying to do in that possession, and then finding those gaps in between the lines and progressing down the field. Joe, uh, Jordan, I wanted to stick with Zimmerman for a second because to Joe's point, Orlando not really helping themselves with the way they set up defensively and not really putting them under pressure. But I also feel like Zim sort of compounded that that tentativeness a little bit and I think like was more willing to carry the ball forward than I expected him to be. And the reason why I'm asking you, Jordan, this is because Joe and I talk about this a lot with the U.S. national team and how Zim seems to be the one that Berhalter wants to just boot the ball clear, win the headers, don't mess around. And so in this game, to see how competent and confident he is on the ball both with his passing forward but also carrying it out and riding challenges I I I guess I didn't realize he had that like level to his game I knew he was a good defender I knew he was good in the air is is this sort of par for the course for him have I been underrating Zimmerman's ability with the ball well I think the last couple years have put this I don't know, shade over our eyes as to like what Zimmerman can do. Because mm-hmm. a lot of those things that you were just mentioning, I think Nashville last year was a little, lot more of a direct team and they didn't, you know, they had this like route one type of play that they did. But Zimmerman, if you think back to LAFC um, days, he was so good on the dribble. And I think Joe is drooling over his ability to <laughs> dribble into midfield and create things that way. This is, I think he is. I can't remember if it was Joe and I talking about this or if it was on I don't I don't remember but we were talking about players that we would like to see in the national team and play one of those center backs roles and I was saying why aren't they calling in Zimmerman and this was back before you know qualifying started because I feel like he has all of the things he is aggressive he wins nearly every aerial duel he is good on the dribble he can defend 1v1 with the best of them his organization is really good um, when trying to keep a back line whether it's a back four or a back three uh, or which converts it to a back five organized in a good line whether it's stepping together or dropping keeping them in the same pace I think Walker Zimmerman is and could potentially be one of the best center backs that plays for the United States because he is still young and he is continuing to grow into his confidence of what he can do. And there are so many little clips in this, even just this game where you see him dribbling out of space in the first half, nearly going 60 yards on the dribble from his own 18 through into the other half and then defending DK in the second half and just standing him up, a guy that loves to get, DK loves to get you sized up in the box and give you this little spin turn. And Zimmerman's just like, nope, I'm going to take this ball off of you and connect out my left side. I just, I think he is so quality, and I love that you call him Zim, and now that's all I'm going to call him. (laughs) Uh, I played football with a guy in college who was Zimmerman, and everyone just called him Zim, and that's the easiest way to deal with it. That's mostly (laughs) because I don't like writing out Zimmerman. I end up writing just Zim. Uh, I will will say, when you talk about what he was doing with DK, my favorite moment from Walker Zimmerman, I'll give him his full billing, uh, was in the 45th minute just before halftime, there is a loose ball uh, rolling into Nashville's half it's sort of at the sideline Zimmerman goes over puts and puts it out of bounds and could easily have just tapped it out of bounds not let it be anything other than that but sees DK also making a play on that ball and I don't know why I love this so much but I did he ratchets up the intensity of passing the ball out of bounds which means he is sort of increasing his 
like physics wise his force into the pass and thus carries through and just completely bodies Daryl DK drops him to the <laughs> ground and then turns and walks away and if ever you needed a statement heading into halftime of I am going to crush your like giant target guy and just show how much right. I can kind of boss him I do feel like that kind of set a tone a little bit and just the casual walk away of like oh I didn't do anything it was no big deal that's just par for the course I came away from this thinking yeah Zimmerman uh, very important for Nashville, certainly very important for the U.S. Uh, national team going forward. And Joe, uh, question for you: Is he? Is he? Where is he on your center back ranking when it comes to Major League Soccer center backs? Is he the best in the league right now? Uh, I don't know if he's the best in the league, but he's got to be up there. Uh, Fantas for Sporting Kansas City, Yaimar for the Seattle Sounders, even even Ariaga at times for the Sounders, I think is really, really strong. When LAFC are up and running, Eddie Segura is a player who I, I enjoy a lot. But Zimmerman is up there. He is, uh, Miles Robinson as well, I should mention, excuse me. Zimmerman is a top, top, top tier center back in Major League Soccer, Taylor. All right. Uh, Walker Zim Zimmerman, one of the top center backs in Major League Soccer. We will ponder that one as we go to break. We'll be back to talk about four more games. We've got some work to do, but I think we'll run through those a little bit faster when we return. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back. Final segment. We're going to review four games in hopefully not 45 minutes. We'll kind of run through these quick hits style, starting with Philadelphia Union 1, New York Red Bulls nil. Philly advance. Uh, Joe, this one seemed like a pretty 
fun game on paper, to me at least, a neutral who like kind of knows what the Union have done, knows what the Red Bulls have done uh, previously, historically, but then also this season. And then it ended up basically just being bang into each other for 90 minutes and see what happens. Yes. And the best quote about this game, Taylor, I don't know if you guys read this on Weekend Review or not, because I haven't had a chance to mm-hmm. listen to the MLS segment yet. It's from Jim Curtin, Philadelphia Union head coach Jim Curtin, who described the game this way. It was chaos, period. Definitely set soccer back probably 10 years in terms of style. <laughs> uh, I, I actually butchered, I had the quote down in my notes, I still butchered reading it. But you got the idea. Probably, probably set soccer back 10 years in terms of style of play. And Jim Curtin is exactly right. He was leaning into that idea in this game. This was a monster truck rally. Uh, Charlie Bohm had that quote. I think it's very apt here. Tactical fouls from pretty much the start of this game. Long free kicks. I don't know if there was a single free kick taken short in this game. The first half, guys, had fewer passes than in any game of the 2021 MLS season. They were not passing the ball. One shot on target after regulation, RSL said, hold my beer last night. But this was the RSL versus RSL game prior to that, just with a lot more pressing. 62, 62% pass completion percentage for the Union, 67% for the Red Bulls. And it's a lot of that. A lot of those numbers give listeners a pretty accurate depiction of this game. And then Gleznez comes up and says, all right, we're done here. No penalty kicks. Latest goal in MLS history, 123rd minute. An absolute banger from distance. Almost what we've come to expect from Gleznez at this point. He's had a few of those in his career. A super weird, fun in a twisted way game that wasn't very aesthetically pleasing. Wasn't even really a textbook battle in terms of pressing. But uh, Gleznez is the king and that goal was insane. In a lot of ways, that's what we expected, right? Red Bulls is the best pressing team have turned into what we've always known the Red Bulls to be in the last half of the season. High pressing, make it uncomfortable. It doesn't matter if they're playing away or at home. They are a team who is a disruptor. I think that's exactly what they want to do. They want to disrupt. And Philadelphia in their their structure, how they've been playing in this 4-4-2, it, it has been a lot more direct. I know playing them for Columbus a, a few times this year, we knew that the second ball battle was going to be the what what was key. And that's exactly what this turned into, right? Long balls, trying to find target players. And um, that just turned into what a ping pong match. And I think that's what you called it, Joe, when we were talking about these, these games uh, a couple weeks ago. And it's exactly what it was. I think I like Demolition Derby a little bit better. Um, <laughs> But it was back and forth and just, oof, a lot. We end up getting the winner from Gleznes center back. It's a great hit. We talked about it on Weekend Review. I thought his his chest and like directional control was what allowed it, him to hit that volley. It felt like a striker's finish, which is maybe an important thing to note because it's coming from a center back. Matt Doyle seemed pretty concerned, uh, at least on Twitter, about the Union's lack of a striker when it comes to advancing further into the playoffs, or at least a consistent goal threat, maybe, instead of lack of a striker. And I will say Corey Burke has a couple different chances late in this game, isn't able to take them. It felt like we were going to penalties. We didn't end up getting there. But do you all share Doyle's concern for uh, Philadelphia Union's attacking options? I have I have some concern. You mentioned Corey Burke there, Taylor, Casper Shabilko, and Sergio Santos, mm-hmm. along with Corey Burke, all missed pretty sizable chances for the Union from about the 82nd minute to the end of this game. That's the last eight-ish minutes of regulation and then extra time as well. There's there's some concern there for a Philly team that doesn't really care all that much about building through midfield. They're missing uh, Montero in this game. They're a really creative midfielder. And so that emphasized that idea of playing direct all the more. 
But man, when when you get into the final third and when you have those clear-cut chances, it's helpful. Like we talked about with Nashville earlier, if you have players in, for them, CJ Sapong and Mukhtar, who can finish them off, and, and at least for the Union in this game and, and for stretches of the season as well, they haven't had that. So yeah, Taylor, I, I do have that concern about this team. Talent up front, certainly, and, and strikers that complement each other quite well, I believe. But they certainly miss that finishing touch in this game, and it, it could have really come back to bite them. So Philadelphia Union, though, with the win, advancing to the next round, sporting KC doing the same with a 3-1 to win over Vancouver. Jordan, we talked about uh, Philadelphia Union and some concerns there, but also praising them a bit. Any concerns from this win for sporting KC, or was it mostly just positive for you? I loved it. <laughs> I, it was so different from Sporting Kansas City, which, um, you, you know, they were one of the first games of the weekend. And I think, I don't know if that then tainted my view on these other games when we're talking about um, either Orlando or RSL not high pressing the back line and letting the back line play. But Sporting Kansas City was the first team to do that in the playoffs here. And that was not something that we see Sporting Kansas City do really ever, Joe, is they are a high-pressing team. They like to go win the ball back high up the field. And it was really well done by the front three of Shallowy, um, Russell, and why am I blanking Kyrie right Shelton. now? Yeah. Shelton of of dictating that line. And, and before they scored the first goal, I thought it was interesting that their, their line of confrontation was about 10 yards, maybe 15 yards above the half field. So they were letting... Vancouver say, okay, break us down. Like we're going to all be behind the ball. See if you guys can figure out a way to break us down and be the team that can beat us here. You know, kind of using some of that gamesmanship against uh, Vancouver. And then once they scored the first goal, they dropped even deeper. And there were so many things that I loved about this game, whether it was the tactic of, um, Graham Zusi always finding that space in behind Florian Youngworth on the big, huge diagonal and then using that to his advantage where then Graham Zusi was, I mean, he looked like he was 25 again, just running up and down the field, c- connecting on two of the, the, the goals. Um, I, w- I was listening to the announcer. I don't know if you guys caught this on the, the broadcast in, in Spanish. You know, I'm trying to work on my Spanish too, Taylor. And, um, I heard the announcer say he's part Brazilian. <laughs> when referring to Cram Zuzi. And it was quite the performance for them. I thought it was really solid. And one of the things that they did well, Joe, is they really supported Ilya in that holding midfield position in against a Vancouver side who's playing this 3-5-2 type formation where they're going to have a lot of players in and around that lone pivot for SKC of Ilya. And it was Walter supporting him. It was even the outside backs tucking in to help support that space next to Ilya. And that was the space where this game was going to be won or lost. And I think that SKC's tactics of getting a player next to Ilya in those spots was really spot on. Taylor, sorry, Jordan, I agree with everything you just said. I think the game plan from Peter Vermees was spot on in this one. I expected this to go a lot differently, right? I expected Sporting Kansas City to get on the ball, to use it to possess, to press really high up the field, to just smother Vancouver, and for Vancouver to look for opportunities to hit in transition through Ryan Gold. And Peter Vermees just flipped the game on its head, right, and forced Vancouver to possess, and I think that was brilliant. In in doing that, in playing a little bit deeper, in drawing their line of confrontation closer to midfield than than to the the final third, they really Sporting Kansas City really negated Ryan Gall's ability to impact this game. Midseason transfer, Graham Rutherford's favorite player of all time outside of Billy Gilmore, Scotland's Ryan Gall. Uh, he's this really dribbly, 
creative transition player who when he's on the ball, he likes to go forward. He likes to, to run towards goal and create. And he just didn't have a lot of chances to do that because Kansas City kept their midfield so tight. They kept the front three in good positions to block off meaningful passes into that central space. For Gauld playing as a 10, he only had 17 touches in the first half of this game, which is tied for the fewest he's had in a first half at any point this season. I think that number really serves to illustrate Peter Vermees' plan and, and, and shows how well SKC executed that game plan in this game. Which means we've got SKC advancing to the conference semifinal on the west side, facing RSL. What do you all expect from that game, knowing what we know now about RSL and the way they played against Seattle? How can Sporting Kansas City get a different result? How can they change things up? How can they make uh, RSL more uncomfortable than Seattle were able to do? Well, first off, if RSL, I don't know if they'll change much. Mm-hmm. Joe, we'll, do you, I think we're going to see another defensive performance from them. I, I but that is a question, right? Well, they have Rusnak back, which is such a key player in the way that they build out and they connect in those, those moments of going forward. So I think that's a big question, but I, I do anticipate them to have the same steady defensive performance. I don't know if much changes for them, but for Sporting Kansas City, then I, I think that's going to change that. I think that this is a team with the players that they have in this in this 4-3-3 formation where they're going to have a little bit more success, I think, in the channels and being able to overload the channels and potentially break this RSL team down. I don't know if that's those are the spots that you're looking at, Joe, but um, SKC has been good in the channel this year when you're talking about Shallowy and Johnny Russell get, being able to get at players and create from wide spaces. Um, that's really one of the places that they've been so dangerous. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there, Jordan. I think there could be a lot of opportunities for Shallowy in particular to get on the ball a little bit wider on that left side and cause problems. I also think RSL might force SKC into holding the ball more than they wanted to against Vancouver. And so it could turn into more of a classic Sporting Kansas City game where they're dominating the ball. This is how it went a little bit more so on Decision Day when RSL uh, played Sporting Kansas City. I would expect Peter Vermees' team to have more possession and to try to use that to create chances instead of, like we saw against Vancouver, them playing a little bit deeper and attacking in transition. I could be totally wrong about that, but I think that might end up being how this game plays out. Let's stay uh, in the Western Conference for a moment. In the other conference semifinal, it's Colorado hosting, uh, I almost said Portugal, which would not have been correct. Portland, who got the win over Minnesota. There we go. I got all my teams right. It is the World Cup. They're competing for the World Cup, Of course. We know that. In Chicago. The World Cup in Mm -hmm, Chicago. Chicago. That's how it works. Um, uh, This Portland team is a bit of a conundrum as well. A few different teams are conundrums when it comes to the playoffs. Lots of wins, lots of losses, very few draws. It feels like it's either good or bad. This win was good. Do we expect them to continue to be good? Will they keep this form going? Is this sort of what Portland does? They round into form for the playoffs. They hit their stride, and away we go. And if so, Joe, how important is Blanco going to be to that continuing to be the case? Oh, Sebastian Blanco is so good. He might be the single most informed player in Major League Soccer right now. I don't I don't know for sure, but he's got to be up there, right? I just wrote a piece for MLSsoccer.com yesterday previewing the Rapids against Portland Timbers on Thanksgiving, because that's going to be our Thanksgiving Day game, and just had a chance to dive into Blanco's numbers, and he has been one of the best five, maybe, MLS players since he started getting real minutes in August. Uh, he's he's unreal on the ball. He can create, he can score. He scored multiple times in this game against Minnesota United. He is integral to their success. 
Portland showed some of their offensive chops in this game against Minnesota United. Really, around the 30th minute, they started to pour on the pressure. Yumi Chara cutting past Will Trap, causing problems in the 33rd minute. Ozzy Alonso and Will Trap miscommunication that leads to a Dyron uh, foul and, and Dyron drawing a free kick a little bit later. And then Felipe Mora has some great movement between the lines to get the ball to Christian Paredes. And it's just really good sequences that eventually lead to uh, Luis Mabiala's goal in the 43rd minute to get Portland on the board and to equalize in this game. And then after that, man, it's the Blanco show. Minnesota United, for their half of this game, I think let off the gas a little bit too much. They started really well playing through the lines. They get a beautiful team goal that exposes... One of the two biggest weaknesses with this Portland team, which is their open play defending, and the other biggest weakness is their set-piece defending. That's the concern for Portland against against the Rapids. Can they contain Colorado's attacking play? Because they didn't contain Minnesota at all in the first 15 minutes. They settled things, and Minnesota helped them settle things by dropping a little bit and playing into Portland's hands. But this Portland team is is really dangerous with the ball and really leaky without the ball, and that could make for a pretty fun Thanksgiving Day game. And the you you mentioned Blanco and and I think he is he's he's so in form right now and if they don't have him I don't know what Portland creates right what do they create outside of Blanco in this game not not much if anything so he is so key for them but if you're looking at the midfield of him and Diego Chara and then Paredes. I, I was impressed by Paredes. I thought he had a solid game, really playing in more of an eight role, allowing Chara to to sit and do what Chara does is just disrupt. But Paredes was winning second balls. He was high pressing. He was almost going up at times, being a second number 10 next to Blanco and pulling some attention away from him. Yeah, he doesn't have the same ability on the ball as Blanco, but I thought that if my, my thought going forward is if Portland is going to be effective against Colorado, it's going to have to do with Paredes and that extra player in the midfield alongside Chara and Blanco, because those two are going to be solid. But what can that other third player do, especially against a Colorado team with so many numbers in that central space? Um, that's where I think that Portland has to be on point if they're they're going forward and they're going to get a win on Thanksgiving. I can't tell if my dogs are Tired of us talking about Major League Soccer, uh, maybe just don't love the disrespect we're showing to some of the teams, or maybe just feel like it's a, it's time for us to move on. But either way, my dogs have now uh, sounded the alarm. Thank you to them for that. Thank you both for uh, for those answers. My other question would be why Minnesota weren't able to be more effective. It seems like Reynoso didn't have a particularly good evening. Were Portland doing anything specific to limit what Minnesota could do, or was it just an off night overall? I just saw it as Minnesota being too passive after they go up early on in this game, some good combination play between Reynoso and Franco Fragapane on the left wing for Minnesota United. Reynoso starting as that 10 in the 4-2-3-1 for Adrian Heath would drift out wide to that left side and they would have some good moments together and, and Reynoso really preferring to drift to the left as opposed to over to Robin Lode on the right. But after that, they just didn't look as threatening with the ball. They stopped really trying to break through those lines or they, maybe they stopped executing and really exploiting that space and, and finding Reynoso. And I think that limited his ability to impact this game and, and overall hurt their team's ability to get a result in this one, Taylor. I wrote hopeful. I felt like it was very hopeful from Minnesota, especially after their goal, after they went down, um, you know, going into half one to one. It felt like the whole second half was very hopeful for them when they were going forward in the attacking third. And yeah, it, a lot of it was Reynoso on the ball. But more and more in Major League Soccer, we talk about these tens and how 
instrumental they are to the teams because they're DPs. Oh, I, I can't name a 10 off the top of my head who isn't a DP in Major League Soccer. These are big money players who have to make a big impact. But if they don't do the defensive work, that goal from Portland is the perfect example. You know, it's Fragapane on the, the left side trying to dribble inside. He loses it. It's a, a silly loss of the ball, but Reynoso stands. Yeah. He doesn't even try to do anything. And, and Minnesota has numbers, but I'm not saying it's Reynoso's fault, but that is a, a small moment where you see if you're, if that's the body language that your team sees from their star player, I just feel like it's very difficult as a player on that team to trust that you're going to be able to put in the work when you're not even willing to like sprint 10 yards and try to get pressure on the ball. That was a whole mess. The whole, the goal for, Portland, when Blanco hits from distance, is a mess by Minnesota. They have numbers. It's a 4v2 situation in the center of the park there. They could have gotten pressure on the ball. They didn't. But it's Reynoso's body language that I think was a real downer for Minnesota. And that's why it felt hopeful. Because he, every time he got the ball, it was like, oh, we hope he can do something. But every time they didn't have the ball, it was there was no effort in order to try to win the game back and try to get it back in their hands. So we've got uh, Portland versus uh, Colorado. Excuse me, Colorado. I'm trying to get my pronunciation right, Jordan. Can you can you Colorado? say Colorado? Uh, yeah. I know. I think I say it different. I think Coloradans say it different. They do. They do. Yeah. I learned that in South Park. The, ever, the way everyone says it in <laughs> South Park is different than the way I always said it. And I slowly learned that that is how you're supposed to say it. But either way, mm-hmm. uh, we have Cal versus Poor. Uh, yeah. Expectations for that game from either of you? I'm just excited to see the Rapids play, man. It'll have been since decision day where they pull off that heights to end up in the top seed in the West. Since we will have seen that team, I am curious to watch set pieces. Rapids really, really good on set pieces. Portland very, very bad at defending set pieces. That's going to be fun. I'm interested to see if the Rapids can generate enough attacking play to break through Portland because there will certainly be gaps there. And then uh, Sebastian Blanco, getting to watch him do anything. I think I'd watch him brush his teeth at this point uh, because he's just so good at everything he's doing right now. That's I really do think that could be a fun game, you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for Colorado, they this is a team. When you're talking about Sebastian Blanco for Portland, you can, I don't know if you can say one player on Colorado that you're like, oh, this guy is the make or break. Like the, the way that they function together as a unit is their strength and – has that been able to continue to build during this layoff and have the confidence coming into this? This is, a, you know, unknown territory for Colorado. This is a team who, um, you know, has very big ups and downs. When they make the playoffs, they can make a run, but they don't make the playoffs very often and or have a long push in playoffs, let alone the number one seed. So can they handle the pressure at home and can they use that to their advantage playing at altitude? Um, I think it's actually going to be a really nice day tomorrow. And guys, I might go to the game. What do you think? Ooh, a little Thanksgiving I soccer. Think I grab a turkey leg yeah. on the way. I think you could be there. Yeah, Jordan. I like that plan. I like that plan a lot. All right. Well, I look forward to finding out if that happened. I'm also looking forward to NYCFC versus New England. NYCFC with a two no win over Atlanta. And I I thought this was very fun, albeit uh, on Yankee Stadium field. We don't have to talk about that. Just a very strange pitch uh, across the board for me. But. NYCFC uh, aggressive in the way they were pressing, making people uncomfortable, really seeming to frustrate Atlanta, who did play out effectively at times and did keep the ball on occasion, but also coughed it up and I think sort of created some of their own problems. Joe, how impressive or impressed were you by this performance and how impressive do you think NYCFC could be going forward against New England? 
I was a six out of ten on this one for NYCFC right. because of how how much better we've seen them be this year. It's not like this was a bad performance from New York City. It wasn't. They had a lot of nice sequences, good little combination play with their tight three attacking midfielders and Santi Rodriguez and Maxi Morales as that ten, and then Jesus Medina on the right side. But with Medina as that right-sided attacking midfielder, that right-sided midfielder, and Tavon Gray, who's a, a young player filling in at right back for Anton Tinnerholm. Those two players in the first half especially, I thought, really struggled to build any momentum. New York City had a lot better play through the middle, and on that left side, when Gray got the ball, he he would see plays that needed to be made, but the passes were off, and Jesus Medina, I think, is generally more of a minus than a plus on that right side anyway. Those players struggled. I think a a big difference for New York City in the second half was Tavon Gray being a a, a little bit more influential off the ball, making some overlapping runs. That was key to at least one of New York City's goal, the first one especially, that Tati Castellano scores. But man, this is a good team, Taylor. This is a team that earlier on in the year I, I, I thought was the best team in Major League Soccer. I, I, I still think that's true in a lot of ways, but there are weaknesses now in part because of the injuries that Ronnie Dyla's squad is dealing with. How big of an impact will those have, do you think, against New England? It's hard to say. New England doesn't give you a lot of room to breathe. I don't know what NYCFC's lineup will look like for that game, but if they're continuing to miss some some pretty important players, Keaton Parks, for example, will not be involved dealing with a blood clot in his leg. So there will there will be key absences. New York City still have that quality, and they have the best nine in Major League Soccer and Tati Castellanos, who can create things. And Maxi Morales, much like Sebastian Blanco, is in great form right now. He is brilliant. He's unreal on the ball, really smart off the ball. He's what Atlanta United didn't have in this game, someone who's going to move and, and connect instead of just dribble all the time. That, for me, felt like the best example of the difference between those two teams. But, Taylor, to your question, I think if NYCFC are are missing some key players, or even if even if they get essentially as full strength of a lineup as they can, if they aren't a little bit sharper on the ball, almost from the jump, New England could end up putting them in the hole. Mm-hmm. I think New, I think New York City did a really good job of denying. It was through Sands and Alfredo Morales denying the entry ball into Martinez. And he's not the the player who wants to come back into the midfield and be the connector like we talked about earlier with CJ Sapong, but he didn't get the ball hardly at all. And I, I think for Atlanta, that was really difficult for them. So when you're talking about New York going forward in those two and what they can do centrally, this is a New England team who likes to have some fluidity in those spaces. And I think that those two holding midfielders for New York on a bigger field in New England are going to have a lot more work to do because this is a narrow field. And I know people don't like to talk about it in New York, but this New York City team knows how to play at Yankee Stadium and they're very effective at it. Um, whereas on the other hand, Atlanta didn't know how to play on this field. And I think one of the things that really shocked me is Atlanta is a team that we've seen all season long, Joe, who play very narrow. When they're counterattacking, it is all through the central channel and they're trying to combine. But when you then take a field and take, gosh, seven, eight yards off of it from the width, well, that narrowness, if you don't use the width, you're only congesting that central channel even more. And it was Bellow who was overlapping way too narrow, wasn't causing the outside back to step outside at all or make a decision. Or um, So it was difficult for Atlanta to really create anything because they were really opposed for some reason of using the channel pretty much any at all. So um, it was a tough one for Atlanta, but I do think City, as Joe said, is a good team. And I, I do... Th- 
I, I feel like they've played so many games outside of Yankee Stadium that the, wasn't their primary home place this year, playing a lot of home games at Red Bull as well, that they can adapt really well to different size fields and different circumstances, that that little bit more of space is only going to help Castellanos and Morales um, get after a new, uh, new England team where I think those two center backs and Farrell and Kessler can get pulled out pretty easily. And if they can combine in and around them, this is going to be a, a city team who can be effective against them. Final question for you both. We've gone long, so I'll try to keep this one brief. If you have somebody who's trying to get into Major League Soccer who hasn't watched a ton of this season, they've chosen the conference semifinal round to do so, which game would you most advise people to watch? Which one do you think could have the most goals or be the most interesting from a tactical perspective or the way the teams come out and kind of go at each other? Which game would you most advise people to watch, Jordan? Ooh, me first. Um, I think I'm going to go with that New England-New York City game Um, because of... What I just said, New England is, they have Carlos Heel. We, we didn't even talk about that. Um, but also their front runners and Gustavo Bowe and what he's been able to do. Adam Buxta. This is a team who flies forward and has really good looking attacks. But City, as Joe said, has been one of the most aggressive teams, um, this year and is fun in possession. They can play through the lines. So I think that. Tactically, that's going to be the most fun game. And I think that the way that these two teams, they're, they're going to be goals in that game. Whereas um, I don't think I would say Nashville, Philadelphia would be the one to go to. Even though, you know, how I got, how I feel, guys. Nashville's going to win that one. <laughs> okay. I am the same. I have the same pick as Jordan, which now means that game's going to be nil-nil. Zero shots on goal from <laughs> know, either team. No, nah, it won't be. I think that one will be really fun. It's the last conference semifinal on November 30th. These all will be interesting in their own ways. But that, that game alone on talent is pretty stacked. And I think the, the differences between these two teams could make it a really fun one in New England. Good news, y'all. I lied. I have one more question. Uh, <laughs> if you had to right now... If I, if I asked you both to select your accommodations and travel plan for MLS Cup and you had to pick which city you would be planning to be going to based on what you've seen so far in the playoffs and from the regular season, where do you think we're going to be ending up if we were to be going to, major, to MLS Cup? So, Jordan, you're already going to Nashville, right? You, yeah. you basically already <laughs> have that flight booked. Ah, Taylor. I, well, how does that work? Because what if Sporting wins? Nashville and Sporting are both third. Oh, Fifty-four true. points. Fifty-eight would go to Sporting. Yeah. yeah. So I say, I say, oh gosh. See, it gets uh, complicated real quick. No, You're, I say Nashville. I I say Nashville. Okay, so hot chicken over barbecue. That that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll go for Boston baked beans. I, yeah. I guess I'm going to New England. I Taylor, I don't know, man. I don't know, but yeah, <laughs> if you're forcing me to pick, I'll go with New England. All right, that's fair. That's fair. So the East, basically, is what you all are saying. The East is going to do some things. I think the East is way stronger than the West, to be completely honest. And I think it has been for large stretches of this season, especially now that Seattle is out. The the four Eastern Conference teams, I would take in a 4v4 matchup over the four Western Conference teams. Mm Mm-hmm. East Coast, Agreed. Best Coast, as we always say. Well, uh, Jordan, Angeli, thank you so well. much for taking all the time today. I, I look forward to you taking your turkey leg to go see Colorado play. Uh, but thank you again for all your time. Yeah, thank you. That was so fun, Taylor. Yeah. Joe Lowry, always good to talk to you. We will talk again uh, on 101 this week, but I'm sure many more times to come. But for now, Joe, thank you as well for taking all the time. You got it, Taylor. And thank you, man. Yeah. Listeners, thank you all so much for listening. Have a happy Thanksgiving. We'll talk to you all again soon.
Slash it. 